Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to 4C. My name is Ben, and I'm joined on the stage by Pastor Joseph, who you saw in the video with the exact same shirt on. Did you think nobody would notice? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, this is Pastor Sabrina, who leads our kids' ministry, does an amazing job. We're very fortunate to have her and her team. And I thought you might like to hear a couple of updates before we do the next installment of our Fixer Upper Message series. So, guys, welcome. Welcome. So much exciting stuff going on, right? There is. Sabrina, tell everybody a little bit about why you're excited for what's happening on the other side of this wall, which is where our expansion for preschool and elementary is happening. I am ridiculously excited. Um, first of all, we're going to be bringing our preschoolers over um, all into one area. So it's going to be so great for me. I'm not going to wear my Fitbit anymore, but um, I'll like uh, have the kids so close. So I'll be able to peek in on all of them. I'm excited about um, the new fun brought in. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to peek, but definitely go check out the elementary space. We may or may not have an awesome new rock wall over there. Yeah, yesterday. We installed a new rock wall, climbing wall, for our elementary space. And so if you have a kid and you've checked them in, you've, maybe you've seen it. If not, after service, kind of mosey through the hallway and uh, take a look. Don't go in the room if you don't have a sticker on, though, because that'll be a problem. Mm-hmm. All right? What else? Um, we're just excited. We're, we, I don't know if you guys know this, but we've added bathrooms. So now all of the preschool classes, all of the kids who are being potty trained, um, they are going to have a bathroom right there. So it's going to be amazing for them to just be able to go to the bathroom when they need to. And you won't see as many rainbow robes. So it's going to be great for our leaders also. Um, but it's just been a really good team building process too. Yeah, so your money in work, your prayer in work, your volunteer hours in work um, is making a dramatic difference. And this project that we've been talking about, we anticipate it being done uh, on July 31, if not before. And um, we're going to celebrate in a big way that last week of July um, around here the dedication of this new space. Eight new bathrooms, five new classrooms, incredibly different sound management in our huge, huge, what used to be a warehouse. So it's just phenomenal what's going on. And Sabrina, you and your team have done an amazing job of maneuvering around some construction stuff. And so on behalf of the church, I just want to say thank you to you guys for staying focused, uh, having your eye on the prize and managing stuff, remembering that it's about kids, because it really is. Yeah, um, I would love to take a chance just to thank all of you. I know some of you worked um, over the weekend, and some of you are scheduled to work today. Thank you so, so much. When you are putting the drywall up, when you're laying carpet squares, it is so much more than just that. Um, Know that your investment, um, you're giving us an opportunity to have a great space to teach the kids in. And the excitement that comes with the rock wall, it's not about a rock wall, but guys, Our kids are comfortable here. This is home to them. So it brings a new element of fun to them. But the kids who are outside of our walls, they don't know Four Corners. They don't know that they could be loved there. But when they see, wow, the church down the street has a lot of fun things. Um, We don't need a gimmick to teach the kids about God. But, man, we have a lot of competition. Soccer, amusement parks, so many great things outside of Four Corners, but we have a lot of competition. So when people see, wow, that church, they, they focus on children. They love their kids. Um, that, makes, that makes being a leader so easy. So if you are also on, on our kids team paid staff, or if you're one of the, the dream teamers, which I like to say non-paid staff, <laughs> um, thank you. Yeah. From the depths of our heart, thank you. This program is about to flourish like Nothing else. Yeah, we haven't seen our best days. It's going to be great. So thank you all. And then you're going to be working close with Joseph. Yeah. Um, So Joseph is our newest pastor on staff. And um, one of the major initiatives that you funded through your Christmas and Easter offering giving is the new safety initiative. And so, Joseph, would you mind to tell, you'll have to give him that mic, would you mind to tell everybody a little bit about kind of where we are and kind of what's coming? They may have seen a little glimpse this morning. Did we have some cool new toys out in the parking lot? Yeah, so you probably, if you didn't see it or was offered a ride, we do have golf carts now that is out there. Woo. All right, I'll be excited if you won't. Woo! We have golf carts. (laughs) They are amazing. So it serves two purposes. 
The first is we want people to have the absolute best experience they can have the moment they pull into the parking lot. And you guys, some of you have had to drive at the Cincinnati Enquirer. Some of you have had to park over there. You've had to park back here. And sometimes it is really difficult to get all the way to the front door. Sometimes it's rainy. Sometimes it's just cold. And that's a bad first experience if you have to walk 300 <laughs> yards to get to the front door. So what we want people to do is we want them to experience real love now the moment they pull into the parking lot. So we got a team who um, is excited about driving a golf cart, as anybody would be. I they am. To, yeah, what, I can mean, I they, they are, They were blessed. We haven't, we haven't raced yet, but uh, they're, they're awesome. But what it does is we give a first experience. We get to say hi, good morning, can we help you? Um, it was cool for me that I got to stand in here and was serving this morning, and I watched my wife and my two little girls get a ride from all the way over there to the front door, and I was like, this is awesome because my wife carries two 25-pound babies like a boss every single week, but today she got to ride on a golf cart. And the second thing is it's our first line of defense. We just want to be outside. We want to know if there's an issue that safety starts in the parking lot. Anything we can help, anything that we can be a part of, we'll start there. A few other things that we're adding that we're working closely with the kids team on is we just said, hey, statistically, what are the most likely things to happen in a church? And so we looked at those things and we started adding some plans. What are we going to do if there's a fire? What do we do if there's a severe weather um, threat? What do we do with those type of things? And the kids team has been awesome. They've helped us out. Uh, we've been collaborating on that. Uh, so what you'll see the next few weeks, you'll see a few golf carts. You'll see some different people with headsets just communicating. But what I really hope that you experience is a bunch of people on a team who just want to serve you and want you to experience real love now in the best way possible. That's what the team's for and that's what we're excited about. Yeah, God has uniquely positioned our church in North Cincinnati to serve families. And if we don't put our money where our mouth is towards kids and students primarily, then we miss the specific call of God on this church. And so you do that, and you allow us to do that, and that will keep us continuing to serve the people that God sends here, and that's really what we're here for. And so I'm really, really excited. You guys are killing it. The way that the initiatives you're doing, the unity you're bringing to the team, the teams you're building, uh, we're served better for your leadership, so thank you both. Would you guys help me say thank you to these awesome team members up here? Appreciate it. Yeah, it's an exciting time. So uh, around here during the summer, uh, often what it might feel like to you is just kind of a pullback and a slowdown. And you'll certainly see all the staff take their vacations. Jill and I will do ours. And so there'll be some people you won't see every Sunday. And that, that's awesome. That's healthy. That's good. But there's no slowdown. Um, we're ramping up for a massive fall. And in the Life at 4C calendar uh, page, or the, the book rather, you'll find one page that has a title, um, The Best Week Ever. And we're intentionally being a little bit vague about that, but between July 28th and August 5th, um, that's eight days, uh, there is an amazing series of opportunities for you, and over the next few weeks you'll find out about them. But what we'd like for you to do is go ahead and just kind of pencil in on your personal calendar um, the Sundays involved in those dates, what I believe is July 29th and August 5th. Uh, you definitely don't want to miss those days. We're going to have some experiences around here like we've never had. And then you'll also notice that there is uh, a couple of summer life group uh, things happening. And you can sign up for those with the one-step process just by on your Connect card, simply writing the, on the back where it says prayer requests, praises, and comments, writing down a small group number, and then circling it real big. And we'll make sure that you get communicated to uh, this week about that, all right? So today we're continuing the message series Fixer Upper and we're going to park ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 5. So if you have your Bible on your phone, um, on the screens as well, however it is you'd like to follow along, you can go there or you can take your message notes. And the bulk of that chapter is actually for us right there inside as well. The text is a little small, but perhaps you, uh, you can read it. All right, so um, I want to talk with you today. Uh, about uh, two steps back. Last week we talked about three steps forward. And we talked about when you move forward, anytime you want to move forward, you're going to get opposition. If there's anything you give yourself good to, no matter how good and noble it is, no matter how much the people around you should be excited for you to do it, you're going to have opposition. It's just the way the world works because the world is broken. And Jesus was very clear about this. He said, in the world you're going to have trouble. And you do. You know this. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So you can push forward, but there will be opposition. But our God is bigger than every obstacle. Sometimes that opposition comes to the outside. Today, we're going to talk about kind of the two steps back, that 
for me, and it will be true for a lot of you, the biggest opposition that gets to me the most, the one that tends to slow me down the most, brings my gears to a halt the quickest, is not opposition from outside. It's opposition from inside. You'll have opposition from outside if you try to do anything good. Go ahead and commit yourself to being a godly husband. Go ahead and commit yourself to being a loving wife, and there's going to be opposition. Life is not going to lend itself to those good goals. And you'll have to power through. But it won't just be outside stuff. There'll be stuff up close and personal. And so today, we're going to look at Nehemiah, who we've been looking at for a while now. As God sent him to rebuild the broken walls, the walls of protection, the walls that brought peace, the walls that let people sleep with both eyes closed versus one open, kind of wondering what other calamity might befall them. Nehemiah was sent to rebuild broken walls in his life and among the people he cared about, but it didn't go easy. It wasn't smooth sailing. He didn't commit to a worthy goal and have an easy path. And you won't either. And the tendency will be then to back off your goals, to not press in. That'll be what some people will do. And you know people who do that right now. They have been in coast mode. And I'm not throwing shade on them at all. No fault at all for that. I I get it. I mean, when the opposition is persistent, when, when, when it is hard and there's no break, the heart does grow faint. It does. Lots of compassion for that. But that's exactly where God wants to come in and breathe life into stale places. Sometimes, you know people who've been here, they give themselves, but Their experience in the giving themselves to something good have left them wounded and bruised. And maybe they're still pushing a bit, but there's an edge in their life. There's a certain amount of bitterness, perhaps, that manifests itself as a, well, as a little bit of meanness in their life. And their journey has left left them a little sour, a little bruised. I like to talk about the bumped elbow syndrome. You know what this is. You're doing something and you really, really bang your elbow. Maybe you get a little scab on it. It begins to heal. And in fact, from the outside, it can look almost all the way healed up. But a few days later, a few weeks later, you bump it again, but only barely. But the second bump, while it should only hurt it like a two, it hurts as an eight. Because even though you only injured it as a two, that previous thing was there and it accumulates. And it's left them a little edgy and mean and difficult to be around. Opposition can can bring a toll to you. But God is there to come alongside. And we're going to discover from Nehemiah today how when he consistently gave himself to the call of God on his life, and you have a call, that even though it wasn't easy, even though he had to live in the real world, he was persistent. He met his obstacles head on. And at the end of the day, he was successful. Not just in rebuilding the walls, which is the easily measured success, that he hit some benchmark, some number. That's an important success, but it wasn't the true and complete measure of his success. The true and complete measure of his, of his success was is that he was faithful. He was faithful. And, and the Lord tells us as followers, as believers today, that the true An accurate test of your success in life will not simply be a set of numbers. It won't simply be a a resume. It won't be simply the things that people say about you at your funeral. Those things do matter. Don't dismiss them. They are important, but they are of secondary importance. The true importance and the success of your life will be when your heavenly father looks at you and he says, well done. Good and faithful servant. Good and faithful. Today is a lesson on faithfulness. It's a lesson on dealing with opposition that's up, close, and personal. And while Nehemiah's story is a few thousand years old, and its geography is radically different, and as far as I know, nobody's commissioned to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem today. Maybe you are. I don't, don't know. And while it's radically different, it is a familiar story because you have seen it in others. 
And some of you are living it. In fact, all of us to some degree are living the same story. So today's story happens about three-fourths of the way. And we know we're three-fourths of the way because in chapter 6, the walls are going to be done. That's where we're going to end next week, this series. So the walls are going to be done, but you got to imagine Nehemiah. He's in chapter 5, but at this point, he doesn't know he's in chapter 5 and that the story's going to end in chapter 6. He doesn't know that yet. Just like you don't know when yours is ending. Like you don't know how far you are away from the thing yet. So for him, he's not living as if I, when I read his story, understand, oh, we're almost there. The end is coming. It's just actually just one page in my Bible, and life is radically different. That's not where he is. He's in chapter 5, and he doesn't even know it's a chapter 5 because he's living it, not writing it. And, and he doesn't even know that he's this close. He has no idea. I just, I just have to acknowledge, it's possible, honestly, that some of you in the room, you're this close. I mean, that's possible. You don't know. I don't know. You know what I know? I know what it feels like to be right here where it hasn't happened yet, where I'm still fighting and pressing. That's what I know. I have no way of knowing what's next. So let me, let me just tell you, in a, in a word, here's what spans the gap for you and for me between our where we are and the success we want. Here it is, here it is. There's one word. We've already used it today. When it comes to what really matters, the difference is faithfulness. Because if you stay on the path and you're faithful to what God called you to do, your ultimate measure of success will happen for you. Well done, good and faithful. But not just some point in the future when the Lord looks at you and you lock eyes. Even here and now, your faithfulness to the thing in front of you will get you to the place God wants you to go. And the enemy of your soul, whose goal for you is to kill, steal, and destroy. Do not mistake. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He knows that if he can affect your faithfulness, he can keep you from getting there. I'm not talking about like ultimately getting to heaven. I certainly think that's at stake too. But he knows that he can keep you from getting into the place where God has called you, where your greatest fruitfulness, your greatest enjoyment, and you're walking in your purpose. And it doesn't get easy in the sense that there's no obstacles, but it gets easier in the sense that you begin to look back and go, oh, I see what the Lord was doing in some of that. Oh, I learned lessons there. Oh, I got strength training through the resistance of that season in my life. And now I'm here. And it's not like I'm in heaven already because I'm still on earth and it's very broken. But while I'm here, I can begin to see and a certain stability kicks in and a certain enjoyment kicks in. And the enemy doesn't want you there. So you first blink in your message notes when the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside affecting your environment and the world in which you operate, <laughs> he often begins to attack from within. Kind of a two-pronged approach. Now, this is just pastoral, all right? So I can't take you to the verse that says this, but I have just observed that when you're under opposition and you're under attack, and sometimes just because you live in a broken world, the good stuff is uphill, and some of us just have a certain grit towards that external attack. But almost everybody is really sensitive in a healthy way to the stuff that's real close to your heart. I mean, just, it's intuitive. And I want to give you one of, the, one of the quickest ways that the enemy, one of his preferred tools that he'll use to affect you from within, to grind you to a halt, to cause your faithfulness to falter. Selfishness. Selfishness. And don't, don't put your seatbelt on. Right? I'm not, I'm not going to attack you. Right? Let's just be honest. Let's just get past the emotion of this word for a second. Let's be honest. You know you're selfish. You are. Now, you may be generous in a lot of areas of life. I am. There are areas in my life where I'm very generous. In fact, I'm going to throw out a number. You, you, 
you may not agree with me, but I'm about 98% very generous in every area of life. That is too high, but we're gonna just gonna park it right there for a minute, right? <laughs> it's definitely too high. But I mean, on my best day, there's like a 2% withholding, right? So if you can just agree with me, you're selfish. But that's not the only, I'm gonna help you out just a little bit more. That's not only the only kind of selfishness I'm talking about. Close to your heart, in your inner circle, the people you're doing life with that are a part of God's call on you, that you'll never get where you're going to go without, <laughs> they're selfish too. I'm just going to throw out a number. I'm probably wrong, but the people in my inner circle, they're probably about 95% awesome all the time. You notice they're just a little under me, just a little bit. <laughs> I just made all those numbers up. I don't know what the real numbers are, but I'm just acknowledging that you have a little bit of it in you, and they have a little bit of it in them. You know what this makes for? An awesome marriage. I mean, doesn't it? I mean, you stand before God, you make these promises. You ever notice how easy it is to make a promise? Oh, it's so easy. I promise I will love you, cherish you for all time and eternity. There'll never be a moment I fault. I didn't really say all those words. That's really what I'm implying. There's never going to be a moment. And everybody's like, they clap. Oh, you guys are going to be awesome. And 10 years later, I'm like, what was I thinking? I only had a moment or two of those moments, but I had them. I had them. I, I've told the truth that about a year into our marriage, we, Jill and I were laying back to back after our first major, disgusting, ugly argument, and I thought, I have made the biggest mistake of my life. Right? Why? Because she, she is selfish. <laughs> and I am too. Right? That's just the way it works. And the people that you work with, the people you do ministry with, some of the people you have blessed the most, I mean, like you personally have invested, they're selfish. Broken, you use your word. So here in Nehemiah, it's rebuilding the wall, and something begins to surface. Now, here's the thing it had been there all along, but it begins to surface. And when it surfaces, it's big, it's hairy. It's ugly. They got to deal with it. And at the core of it, there's some selfishness going on. There's some unchecked ego. There's some people who maybe didn't even mean for bad things to happen, but they just took advantage of certain cir circumstances in such a way that the impact on others left them in a bad place. And the job Nehemiah was commissioned to do was so big that it required virtually everybody to be on task. And it required virtually everybody to participate. And without it, they weren't going to get there. And just think about that for a second. That's true in your life. Now, you don't need everybody to like you and not everybody has to participate. The other side of this conversation is there's a great place for some boundaries. All right, so that's fine. But think about your most inner circle. Spouse, family, best friends, co-workers, that you, you know, your partnership with them is, is a significant ingredient to the success of the enterprise, whatever it is. It's not everybody, but your inner circle. If somebody's not pulling their weight, if somebody's not giving themselves to the good thing that the two of you, the five of you have to do together, it's debilitating. It's exhausting. And often you don't know about it right away. But when it surfaces, there are some things we can learn from Nehemiah that will help us engage it, that will help us step through it, not step around it, which is what a lot of people do, not avoid it, not jump ship, but go through it. And when they go through it, they overcome what is, in, at least in the story of Nehemiah, the second to last obstacle before it's done. They don't know that, but their faithfulness. So in Nehemiah chapter 5, in your message notes on the screen, we'll work through these passages and then we'll make a handful of points, all right? So, Nehemiah 5. <clears throat> now the men... And their wives raised a great outcry 
against their fellow Jews. We won't pause at every verse, but let's pause. So husbands and wives get together and like, oh my gosh, I don't like those people. Oh my goodness. And they're together. So at least in this, the husbands and wives are together. That's good. So, but as we talk, this might like literally apply to your marriage. In this case, what you have is a group, a whole community of people whose full efforts are have to be given to the rebuilding of the walls. When they do that, everybody will be blessed. But in this moment in their life, what they've realized is, is we got families against families. It's people stuff, friends. The, the enemy's attack up close and personal, it's the people dynamic. <laughs> it's never going to go away. Your kids are never going to be so perfect that you get to lay in bed at night as a parent and go, this is the greatest life ever. You know, I had about three years like that. My kids were toddlers. Jill did about 90% of the care. I loved it. It was awesome. And then we started running into problems later on in the middle school years that an ice cream cone wouldn't fix. Now, there was a season, almost every problem I could get in the car and say, let's go to UDF, because I wasn't about to take them to graders. That's too expensive. Let's go to UDF, right? And honestly, I could fix like most every problem. Seriously. And I'd lay down at night and go, oh, I'm a really good dad. And then middle school happened. <laughs> there are middle school problems ice cream don't fix. Did you, did you know that? It's true. There are issues in your marriage that a vacation is not going to fix. Now, I bet some of you need a vacation. I bet it fixes a lot of things. Could, at least. Unless you're like our family. About day three of every vacation, we have a meltdown. That's why we take people with us when we vacation. It meters our meltdown. Because without them, man, there's no boundary, you know? No, we usually recover and make the best of it and all that stuff. But Come on, you know what I'm talking about. It's the people stuff. You got that one guy in your office that you work with, that one lady, and their job, their weight is essential to the success of the thing. <laughs> and they're not clicking. On occasion, I get to talk to pastors, and they ask me, you know, how to do things. And we, the Lord has blessed our ministry here, and as far as churches go, we nationally compared, we do very well. And so sometimes pastor will come and say, how do I deal with this thing? It's not like I'll sit down with them. And there's always, in the story, there's, always, there's the one guy, there's the one girl on the team, and it's like they don't know what to do. In a marriage, I mean, if you're both not pulling. So in this case, family against family, and they raised an outcry. That's just kind of like an Old Testament way of saying, it's really bad. It's really bad. All right, verse two, some were saying, so here, here's their context. We and our sons and our daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we mortgaged our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So here's the historical context. There had been some kind of a famine while they're building the wall. And doesn't it always go that way? You give yourself to something good, the task is hard enough, and then something from the outside happens. <laughs> You know, you're, 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 in a, you're in an environment, you're doing the thing with your business team, and then the, you, you realize there's been a shift. Maybe you had some, but there's now there's a shift in the market, the locally, something has happened. There's a, a new regulation that's affecting. So it was hard already. Now the, the rules have changed a bit. You're, you're dealing with like your, your marriage thing, and about the time you get it figured out for this season of life, your kids transition or something happens, the car breaks. It seems like there's always something else. That's why this is a timeless story. In their case, they're rebuilding the walls. There's a famine, and they have mouths to feed. So what they did is they'd sell off part of their property to help buy food in famine. Prices are high, supply and demand. And now they have less land, but they fed their kids. Now they don't have enough land to grow enough food on anymore. Do you see the problem? 
you, you get this. This is one of the reasons we do FPU, financial peace, is uh, you don't have the money to do what you want to do, so you put it on a credit card. Now you've got to pay the credit card off, so every month now you have a little less money. And so you get, some of you got another credit card. To, right? it's, it, it, listen, this is age-old stuff. That's the outside stuff. That can be dealt with, and Nehemiah's going to deal with that. But what it's doing, and here, here, this is how the enemy is so good in your life. He's so effective, not good-hearted. He's effective. They got outside stuff. There's a famine. But what it's done is it's turned family against family because some families weren't experiencing quite the same dynamic, and they're buying that land. They're loaning money. And when they loan money, they're charging really ridiculous interest rates. Which in the Jewish culture at the time is a big, big no-no. Because the Bible says in the Old Testament that between Jewish families, you can loan money, but you have to be very fair with your interest rates. You're not supposed to take advantage of a person when they're like in a barrel headed for the falls. You're just not supposed to, just because you can. And in the circumstance where they are, where people are going hungry, you can charge whatever you want because as long as they can get the next meal, they feel like they've done something, even if they're not thinking about six months from now. So now it's like some are getting really rich taking advantage, and others are literally losing the capacity to even feed their families. So in verse 6, Nehemiah now, when I heard their outcry against these charges, look, look at his response. I was very angry. Now, the Bible's crystal clear. Anger is a dangerous emotion. And honestly, I'm going to throw out a number, half the time it's a misuse of emotion. It's a It's a negative thing. But there are times in your life when anger is the right response. When you see an injustice, you've had the the feeling when you were watching the news and you saw something on the other side of the world, and something rises up in you, like a righteous anger. Parents, you've had this happen. When, When something happens in your kid's life and something happened to them, and... There's just in you a, uh, I'm going to go get them. I, it's true. I joke about it. It's, you know, I'm not that guy anymore. But when Ellen was in daycare and a kid bit her, like it's a really good thing I wasn't there. Because I'm sure I'd have gone to jail for drop kicking a toddler. I'm confident. <laughs> but there was like an, and that's totally normal. I get it. I was just a 20-something dad. I just, but I'm looking at her arm. <laughs> Seriously, this is ridiculous. My first kid, it's my daughter. I'm highly protective. I'm trying to figure out the bite marks so I can look at each kid's mouth. And I'm, Jill's finally like, you have got to calm down. This is not a time for vengeance. I'm like, you're right, you're calm down. We pulled her out of that daycare there because those workers weren't worth their money. Anyway, I'm kidding. We did pull her out. They were, it was a legitimate, normal thing that happens. But you get what I mean when I talk about the anger kicks in? There are times when it's okay to be angry at your spouse. It should be. Sometimes their behavior is ridiculous. You can be angry at yourself. You can be angry at that. And when it's inner circle, here's the problem with anger. Even when it's righteous, how it's expressed can be a real challenge. And this is not scientific, what I'm getting ready to say. I don't have data for it. It's intuitive. I've been doing ministry long enough. I'm allowed to have a few of those a year, all right? So here we go. I have learned, I've observed, I think, that the higher the gifting for leadership, whatever that is, and by leadership, I don't mean general, just good people. I mean the people who get things done with teams of people, leaders. The higher the gift of leadership, the higher propensity for anger and the higher propensity for anger to be expressed poorly. Now, there's a declining impact on the back end because if that doesn't get reined in, then their ability to lead people eventually drops. But you'll discover among young leaders who are driven, you want drivenness, you'll discover among older leaders who are go-get-it kinds of people that they're often their early response to obstacle is anger. That's okay. Do not try to put a blanket on that. The emotion is fine. The expression of the anger is where you get into trouble, right? There are some arguments you should be having at home, and some of you, your marriages suck because you're not having the right kinds of arguments. They do. You're not talking about the very obstacle of money that you keep arguing about, and you're not talking about solutions. 
And so the joy in your marriage constantly dissipates because you're, dissipates because nobody's expressing the righteous anger about the sinful pattern of money or this, whatever, whatever it is. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta fight. How you fight? How you fight? That's the problem. And in Nehemiah, what we see is a is a great leader who has all the emotions that life brings. But he leads himself very well in the middle of it. And remember when we started this whole series, the hardest person you will ever lead is you. The hardest person I'll ever lead is me. So Nehemiah was very, very angry. Verse 7, I pondered them in my heart, these complaints, or in my mind. (laughs) So he takes some time. He's not reacting. He's angry, but notice he's not talking. He's pondering in his mind. And then I accused the nobles and the officials, and I told them. So he's pondering, he's anger, he ponders, and then he talks. Not bad leadership. Go into the room, shut the door, make the list. Literally, make the list. That's what he does. All right? And then he goes and and he gets after the problem. Notice the language. I accused. Now, most conversations don't go well when you accuse. The next few verses are going to be an anomaly. Because most of the time when you have to confront, when you have to accuse, when you have to go at the problem, you know, think about that person in your office right now, at, in your team, who's not pulling their weight. And you know it. Others know it. They probably know it. That's probably why they're hiding a little bit. Imagine what it looked like if tomorrow you go in and you shut the door and say, we got to talk. And you make the very accurate and probably honest, true assessment, and you give them that gift. They won't consider it a gift. They won't. There's a lot we could do. So don't do that. I'm not encouraging you. But just imagine if you did. There's a lot of ways to approach that that might lend it towards better success than what I'm kind of shortcutting to right now. But imagine if you did it. So Nehemiah does the thinking, and then he makes his list in his head. And then he goes and says, here's what I'm going to say to the nobles and officials. And I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them, and I said, so he goes individually. Hey, 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 you can charge some interest. You're charging ridiculous amounts of interest. People can't recover. You can't do this. And by the way, this is your family. We're in this together, and it's hard enough as it is. We, and so he's having these individual conversations. And then after that, he calls together a large group to deal with them. So what's the leader do? The leader deals with the problems. You don't wait for people to tell you to deal with the problem when you're a leader. You don't. You deal with it. When you're leading yourself well, you deal with your own. And when you're leading other people and you're responsible for leading a team, you deal with the problems on the team. You do the best you can. That's Activism, in my opinion, is almost always better than passivism in the role of leading yourself and leading others. So he calls them together, and he does the hard work. And he says, verse 8, and I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us? And they were quiet because they couldn't find anything to say. By the way, that doesn't happen to me when I have to do correction. Very rarely is somebody silent. In fact, when they are, I get nervous. Like, have you ever, parents, you ever had to scold a kid? Your own, hopefully, don't, you know, don't scold somebody else's. But you're scolding your kid, and they just sit there quiet. It's like, show me something. God, what's going on in that head? I don't, I don't know, right? If you've been a boss, and I'm not saying, like, scold. I don't know what image you have in mind. You're talking about the problem. And they just sit there silent. I don't, that unnerves me. But for Nehemiah, what you're going to discover is there's something about the way he did it, and we're going to explore it just a little bit further, that when the accusations came, and they were accusations, they weren't suggestions, they were point-blank feedback, the people sat there and went, hmm. And their silence wasn't disconnection. They were considering what was being said. I wish... All my challenges went that way. I I wish all my conversations with Jill, when she's pushing in on me, were to go that way. Right? But part of the joy in your life, part of the success you're feeling 
you know, empowered in your life is dealing with the stuff in front of you. And then when you deal with it, seeing that your efforts are relatively successful. Most of us, if we're honest, we don't really want a problem-free life. We know that that's not realistic anyway. What we really want is that when we engage our problems, when we engage the opposition, that we're reasonably over time successful in seeing some progress. It's the stuff that you do over and over. And I don't know about you guys, but Jill and I, in our life, we're you know, nearing 30 years. Like we're at 28 years together, and we only have five arguments. The same five arguments over and over and over again. And sometimes, like, we'll pull back and go, and now, at this point in our marriage, we don't even have to have the argument. I know what she's going to say. She knows something. So I go off to my room all mad without us even talking about it because we know exactly how it's going to go. I'm exaggerating a bit, but you, you might have been through some of that, right? You know the dynamics. If we watch Nehemiah a little closely, you're going to learn a handful of tools to use. This is not complicated. It requires a certain amount of grit. Another word for grit is faithfulness to press through. Doesn't make it easy, but it is a path forward, all right? So let's continue to see what happens, and then we'll identify the handful of learnings, all right? So verse 9, so I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. So keep helping them out. Just stop it with taking advantage of people. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive grains, and their houses, and also the interest that you're charging them. One percent money, grain, and new wine and olive oil. So he's basically saying, look, keep it reasonable. One percent. Now, I don't know if that's reasonable in their time. I don't know what it is. But what they were doing was literally their individual selfishness was affecting people. And the leader called a foul. By the way, leaders call foul. And you'll discover a lot of people don't like it when you do. Time out. We don't treat each other on the team this way. Time out, we don't talk to each other this way. Time out, we said we weren't going to do that anymore, and there we are. Time out, leaders call foul. And in your life, you're allowed to call foul when somebody crosses the line, when they're not in play, at the way they're supposed to be. And you're allowed to call foul. And when you call foul, and somebody up close to you is up close to you, and they're not, they don't get in line, it's okay to you know, red card them and kick them off the field. It is okay. You can't do that to your spouse. That's a covenant relationship. That's for a different message series. But you can't have boundaries. In fact, you got to. You should. That's what leaders do. But you don't go from anger to red card. <laughs> you don't. There's a process. And we get to see Nehemiah do this. And by the way, for those of you that kind of know your Bible more, this is nothing more than, a, than an echo of Matthew chapter 18 in your New Testament. What I believe is the most disregarded passage from Christians in the Bible. The most disobedience, in my opinion, in your New Testament happens against Matthew 18. And Nehemiah is going to show us that it really does work well. We'll talk about it just a little bit more, but let's get more of the story. All right? So look at what they, ha- they say at verse 12. So <laughs> the people get together and they say, we're going to give back. We're going to do it. <laughs> like, good Lord. Nehemiah has the hand of God upon him because a conversation and it goes well. And so it appears there's more going on behind the scenes. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then look what he did. Then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. Right, you don't make simple promises. You watch your oath. So we're going to get together. We're going to make sure we're clear on the thing. And then we're going to do what you say you're going to do. Some of you in the room, you have credibility problems because you don't do what you say you're going to do in a timely manner. And you lose trust. And the quickest way to gain trust back from anybody is to do what you say you're going to do in a reasonable manner. So Nehemiah gets people together and he says, what do we say we're going to do? All right, this is a big deal. You said it, you're going to have to do it. He's just identifying the win here, all right? And I also shook out the folds of my robe. Now, in the Old Testament, they're big on visual display. So he's got this flowing robe. It represents his role now as the governor. Remember, he starts as a slave, cupbearer to the king. He moves to a builder. Now he's the governor. And he's got this regal robe, and he shakes it out. And uh, that's indicating here of 
I shook out the robe, and in, 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 in this way may God shake out their house and the possessions of anybody who does not keep his promise. May such, so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. All right? So God's going to stretch you big if, if you don't do what you say you're going to do. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, which in the Bible simply means so be it. So when you say amen at the end of a prayer, and, and everybody kind of is just like, so be it. What you prayed, let that be. God, get that done. Amen. And then they praised the Lord, which if they're Baptist, they went, hmm. All right, that's what that meant right there, right? <laughs> and then the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until the 32nd year, that was 12 years he did this. So it wasn't six months. Takes us 15 minutes to read it. It's 12 years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to show you how a good leader leads. All right? But the early governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people. And they took 40 shekels of silver from, in addition to the food and wine that they were allotted. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. How you treat people is a direct reflection of your relationship to the Lord. That's what the Bible says. It's just an example here, over and over. You can't love God and not like people. You can't. You love God in part, as long as you live on this earth, by loving people. All right? So, but out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of this wall. And all my men were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire any land. So he's not using his policies, his position, his power to feed himself, to gain himself. He's making a decent living. But what he's doing, he's blessing people with the overflow of his leadership. By the way, in my opinion, that's what leaders do. They use their power, their privilege to the betterment of others. I've learned the hard way not to put myself in subjection to a leader who doesn't have my best interest as a human being at heart. I won't work for a person like that. I won't be subject to a person like that. And you shouldn't either. You don't have to. Good leaders verbalize and actualize through the behavior the betterment of the people around them, or they're just holding a title and a position. So not Nehemiah. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice of sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done to these people. He's not bragging here. He's saying, God, I've done my best to be faithful. I want you, God, to remember over the years that to the best of my ability, I served in the capacity in which you called me. So let's run through a handful of learnings. We don't have to talk about them at length. We'll just make some statements, all right? Number one. Money issues are almost always a challenge for leaders. At the core of this, the way the selfishness was displayed, there were money problems. Money problems. Number one thing argued about in most homes, money. Biggest obstacles in the place where you work is your team has limited resources. They have limited money to get done a very big vision. Money, always. But here's, here's the thing. Money's not the problem. Typically, money reveals the problems. Jill and I have not had money problems. We've had self-discipline problems. We've had vision problems. Sometimes we had information problems, and they showed up in money. Do you see the difference? Now, sometimes money is just scarce. You can engage that. But sometimes, really, your combined family income is enough for you to live on, but you overspend. You undersave. You don't have a spending plan. We call that a budget. So the money, what you're fighting about is actually quite solvable very often, but it's revealing something else going on. It requires a certain boldness and tenacity to engage money problems. Money issues in the church are a problem. Now, we don't have a money problem in the church. We have other problems. Money's just an indicator that people's hearts haven't turned towards the vision, they don't believe in what's going on, or they're incapable in their own personal lives to do what they'd really like to do. There's a whole lot of things going on, but most churches don't have money problems. They have vision problems, all right? So for Nehemiah, let's see how, it's, how it showed up. His felt problems, that's your blank. Here they were, drought and famine, kind of 
taxes. You know, we're going to take the food. We're going we're to pull away. Um, we're going to make the governors get, you know, more of your stuff. And then there are high interest rates. So no test of leadership, in my opinion, is more revealing than the test of opposition, especially when it comes to money conversations. And the problem is, is opposition, next blank, can lead to a hard heart. But the truth is, is God wants you to have a soft heart. And so what the enemy does is he comes alongside and his biggest tactic when you, he can't stop you from the outside is he wants to turn a heart of flesh that's soft to the stuff of God. He wants to turn it into a heart of stone so that even when you're around the stuff of God, you sit metaphorically with your arms folded and you don't want to receive. You basically come and say, change me, make me, can, you know, entertain me, fill me, speak to me, do mine. And I told you last week, I've never gone to hear a message from anybody when I had that mentality that I received much of anything. But I've heard some really cruddy preachers preach really cruddy messages, and I went with an open heart, and the Lord spoke to me. By the way, I've preached some really cruddy messages with some really cruddy preparation on occasion, and the Lord has used it. That's not to excuse any of that. But when I come open, not hard-hearted, but soft-hearted, the Lord tends to speak. He does. And when I come embittered for whatever reason, I tend to stay embittered. It's amazing how that happens. All right? And then anger without self-control self -control is a wildfire that destroys. If you have righteous anger, good for you. How you express it. And if, if I had to list, you know, kind of my top ten recurring learnings, this is me. Because the way I'm wired, just transparency, here's how it works for me. Grace, 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 I'm done. There's a better path than that, right? Most of the time, my grace sometimes is really avoidance. So let's talk a little bit about how to, to learn some of that. But before we do that, here's something you need to know about Nehemiah, and it might have to be true for you. Nehemiah was not a politician when he was dealing with the problems who asked what's popular. And he wasn't a diplomat who asked what was safe. He was a true godly leader who asked what's right. And so rather than asking yourself what's safe when you lead, rather than asking yourself what's popular, what's going to play well in social media, what's going to play well in front of my kids as we yet once again work it out in front of them, what you have to play is, is what is the right thing? What is God calling me to do? And the leader is that person, forget the title, the leader is that person who steps up and says, here's what we're going to do. So what he did, rather than worrying about popularity and safety, he said that he was going to move forward on the goal. And specifically, Nehemiah took action steps similar, again, here's the blank, to Matthew 18, and he confronted people in stages. So he got angry, he thought about it. I'd suggest you pray on it. You remember James, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That right there changed somebody's life, right? And then when he had thought about it, he sat down to have the conversation privately. And I'm going to tell you, when you do that, sometimes people won't listen. They don't. It's okay. The process is much less about them and it's about you. Now, you hope it helps them. But as a leader, your rightness and wrongness isn't dependent on how somebody responds to your behavior. It's not even the fallout of your behavior. That's not faithfulness. God's never going to come to you and say, I would say well done, good and faithful, but there are some people who didn't like what you did. He ain't going to do that. Nobody else's response to your rightness and your faithfulness is going to be on display when God looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful. It's you. So this is about you doing the right thing for you. Now, when confronted, because there's always got to be the confrontation, and we've had that message multiple times, how do you confront? But when confronted, the people responded healthily. Here's some things they did. They were silent. That's a healthy response on occasion. They determined to stop the wrong behavior. They made specific plans to correct the wrong behavior as quickly as possible. And then they declared their plans before God and the people. These are good things. So for me, as I read this passage, I have to remember that when I'm confronted, there's probably a place for me to just be quiet and receive. Right? And if I'm wrong, I need to take steps to make it right. 
I didn't realize that those actions are an, actually, an actual reflection of my spiritual condition. Now, these next ones are just kind of add-ons, but Nehemiah modeled godly leadership. And I'm going to throw something out that people disagree with, but it's true. I believe good leadership is always godly leadership. And there is no godly leadership that is also good leadership. So godliness and good, if your true success is the Lord saying, well done, good, and faithful, then godly leadership is good leadership. Right? And he used his position to help the people he had responsibility for, not simply to satisfy himself. Clearly, he was well taken care of. But he used his authority and power to bless others. And then he feared God and he cared about people. That's not a bad perspective. Fear the Lord, care about people. But a lot of people <laughs> fear people. It's hard to really be bold when you're afraid of the people around you. And I don't mean like safety fear. I mean emotional fear. Uh, the need for approval. That's really hard. And he was generous with his money and possessions. I've never found a competent leader really, who wasn't also generous with his emotions, with his stuff, with his time, her stuff, her time. I've just never seen it. I've just never seen it. And finally, he worked for God's approval. He worked for God's approval. You're going to have opposition, but God has given you tools in the scripture, and he's given you his Holy Spirit to come alongside you. And if you're stuck today because of outside oppression if you're stuck today because of some of the dynamics we've been talking about here, the first step for all of us, metaphorically, you don't have to do it, is to open your hands and say, God, at the end of the day, my life is yours. Would you fill me with everything I need? Fill me with everything I need to do all that you called me to do. Fill me with everything I need to do all that you called me to do. Why don't you grab out your Connect card and let's uh, take a few steps together. I want to give you a chance to, today to make Jesus your Savior and Lord. So if uh, you've been listening to what we've been talking about over the last few weeks or just today, and you're thinking that maybe a relationship with God is what you need, I don't think that's just you thinking. I think the Holy Spirit is involved in kind of turning your mind and tuning your mind to the spiritual stuff, the stuff that's very important. And the Bible says that you can change your relationship with God by putting your trust in the work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and instead trusting that work other than yourself to secure your relationship to the Lord. We'd ask you to take your pen and just check next step A. Put it in the offering bucket when it comes by, and in a minute I'm going to pray and give you a chance to say to God, God, I'm a sinner, and I need to receive the salvation you offer through Jesus Christ. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. Check the box, and we'll get you started in that conversation. Next step C says, hey, I've been facing some opposition. Would you pray with me? To see the Lord working in me and to trust him more as he works through me. Would you, would you do that? Or it says, I've been facing opposition. Please pray with me to see God working in me and for me to trust him more. And the next step, D says, pray this prayer with me each morning. Father, create in me a teachable heart so I may faithfully and more fully devote myself to the work you're doing through my life. One is pray for you. The other is here's a prayer you can pray. And the next step, E says, hey, I'll help make some time over the next several weeks to uh, help get our space ready and complete. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing, just check it. We'll send you a bunch of calendar dates. You can put them on and show up when you have some time. And if you can't, no big deal. We have generous and faithful people who will make it happen. Why don't you set that card aside, and if you call this church home, it's your opportunity to give today to the work that the Lord is doing here. As you exit this morning, if you get a chance to walk by the kids' area, what you should be thinking is, we're going to serve a lot of families, and the money I gave to make this happen is well spent. And when you get on a golf cart, you should think, wow, we're going to have eyes on the parking lot, and our safety initiative is going to get its full due beginning in the parking lot, and our guests are going to have a more compelling first seven minutes, which really matters to them. And when I give money here, my money is well spent. So when you give money to this place, every penny goes towards mission. And I'm really grateful to serve a church that is so, so generous. Want you bow with me? Let's pray about our offering and our next steps. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, God, that you are stronger than any opposition from without or from within.
God, I pray that you give your followers tangible examples in the pages of Scripture how to face very real problems that we all face. God, I pray that you would call us to great self-leadership, that we would remember that faithfulness to you is very important. And at the end of the day, we cannot have success without it. Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts that apart from you, we really are just dust. And this life is a vapor. But with you, there's a weightiness. There's a, there's a, a heaviness and a joy and a, and a weight that comes to our life. It's meaningful. I pray, Father, that you would give us the boldness, the tenacity, the grit to pursue what is in front of us. To not look to the right or to the left, but to press forward. Have the conversations we need to have. Learn what we need to learn. I pray for those men and women who are declaring today, Jesus, wash away my sins. I trust you. I trust the work that you've done on the cross and in your resurrection to secure my relationship to my heavenly Father. And Lord, would you take the steps we're taking today, our open-heartedness, would you take our gifts, our open wallets, and would you make them go far and wide for your good purpose? Thank you for the faithfulness of this congregation that allows us to continue to look for new ways to serve and be faithful to your call on this church. And Father, finally, I ask that you would breathe new life into your family today, into my brothers and sisters, and that you would encourage our hearts that the Spirit's presence would be very known to us. I ask all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy Son. Amen and amen.